0: Welcome to the Faith Today podcast, conversations inspired by Canada's Christian magazine. I'm Karen Stiller. Jen pollock michelle is a Toronto-based writer who is one of my favorites. She also hosts the Anglewood Review of Books podcast, which I commend to you, especially if you're a book lover. We've had her in the pages of Faith Today, and we need to do that again soon. Jen's books so far are Teach Us to Want, Longing, Ambition, and the Life of Faith, and Keeping Place, Reflections on the Meaning of Home, and most recently, Surprised by Paradox, The Promise of And in an Either-Or World. And actually, all three of those books are so relevant for the times we find ourselves in right now. I spoke with Wise Jen, that's what I'm going to call her, I think, about Lament, how to have truly good conversations, and what to do when people think you are a Christian weirdo, and a whole bunch of other things. And the truth is, I could have talked to her all day. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I do. So Jen, I have read each of your books. I realized that today when I was going back to do make sure I had my Jen research done. And I was like, yeah, I have read all of her books. And I loved each of them. I think your work is solid and beautiful. That's how I would describe it to someone who didn't know you.
1: Oh, well, the, the admiration is ab- absolutely mutual, Karen. I so love your memoir, The Minister's Wife, and it felt the exact same thing. felt it was so honest and beautiful. Wow, thank you. I appreciate mm-hmm.
0: that. Your most recent book, Surprised by Paradox, The Promise of And, in an either-or world, I was thinking it is particularly relevant now. I mean, it came out pre-pandemic. You Mm. couldn't have known (laughs) what what was coming, but you do spend uh, considerable time on lament. And obviously, lament is a perfect word, I think, for what so many of us are doing right now. And I wondered if you could speak to that, first of all, just the role of lament in the Christian life right now, even.
1: Yeah, lament is the both and of both, you know, being able to name honestly our disappointments, our sadness, our anger, our doubt, you know, naming all of that not just in the interior spaces of our mind and soul, but naming it to God and, you know, trusting, hoping, believing that He's working all things together for good. And I feel like the power of lament is, is it's honesty and it's hope, you know, just holding those two things in tension. And I think a lot of times as Christians, we don't like to hold things in tension. It feels really uncomfortable. You know, it feels far more comfortable to just say kind of nice platitudes, like God's working all things together for good. And that, you know, and paste a smile on our face face. And we sort of feel like that's the act of faith, right? Is, you know, to definitely not impugn God's reputation, not don't ever suggest. Us that anything is really wrong or bad in the world or in our lives. But I feel like lament just offers us such a better way, you know, a way that is far more honest. And I think until we get honest with God and with ourselves, like there's really no possibility for transformation. And it is such a moment. I think lament is required in so many different ways, you know, right now in this moment. And even just in the midst of a pandemic, to be able to say, Yeah, God, I, I do trust that you're working some invisible good plan that I can't see but I also have to say, this is hard. You know, this is lonely. I, I was even just writing in my journal today. I think one of the th- hardest parts about it is it feeling like a liminal space, kind of like not the before and not the after, just the in-between. And it's sort of the endless in-between. It's just the it, the enduring quality of the in-between. You don't know when it ever will be after. And I just think that intimacy with God, I think lament is an invitation to be intimate with God, who already knows. I mean, we all know he knows. If he knows, you know, a word before we speak it, you know, he knows everything that, you know, goes on inside of us. And so it's not as if he doesn't know. I think the act of naming it is the act that draws us close to him. Yes. And he knows that we know that he knows. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) (laughs) You know, as you were
0: speaking, I was thinking about uh, your first book, Teach Us to Want, Longing, Ambition, and the Life of Faith. And that book, which is how I discovered you, that book helped me be more okay with my wanting, actually. And so there's an honesty required there, too, when we can be honest and transparent about what we want and need to God, and with each other. And I, I love that idea of honesty between believers, but also in how we speak to people who who may not believe in being honest that yeah, I do not have it all together. And actually, I'm really, you know, annoyed or depressed or sad, (laughs) or whatever about where we are right now in our, our life.
1: Mm hmm. I actually think I was, I was saying to a friend recently, I said, if I were to summarize like the last 10 years of my spiritual journey, it would be like the embracing the invitation to being a human being, you know, with all of the fallibilities and imperfections and, you know, flaws and, and well intentions, you know, good intentions too, you know, being a human on the road to, um, on the road with God, you know, that it is, that is a both and right to kind of the sinner saint experience and so i think that as the church i think the world would rather us offer a picture of what it means to be human in relationship with god than what it means to be superhuman in relationship with god i think a lot of times we have this idea that um, we have to be superhuman you know we have to be sort of invincible impervious to doubt or or sadness or you know some of these more difficult um Maybe maybe we just feel ashamed of those kinds of emotions in the life of faith. And maybe we feel that that would, be, that would not bear witness to the hope that we have um, as Christians. But I really do believe um, that people who are watching Christians would rather have honesty than kind of religious sentiment that feels so hollow and empty. When I live a very human life in front of my neighbors, a life that looks like, you know, I yell at my kids, you know, sometimes my neighbors are going to hear me yell at my kids, especially as I'm getting them in the car in the morning to go to school. Like that, that's not something I'm a proud of, but to be able to say, I am human and I'm learning to, that God actually receives me in my humanness. We're all yeah. really afraid that God doesn't wouldn't receive us in our humanness. If we could live that example, I think that'd be incredibly powerful. Yeah, I agree. Uh, And I'm so glad you said you yell at your kids.
0: Um, (laughs) I have been heard uh, to do that. And actually, I remember once we lived, uh, this is when we lived in the rectory, which is the house beside the church that my husband was pastoring. And it was a Sunday morning, and I yelled at my daughter, you know, get ready or whatever. And then I noticed her bedroom window was open. And I went and peeked, peeked out, and there was an older woman from our church literally looking up uh, at my daughter's window and I said "Holly stop that yelling."
1: <laughs> you <laughs> not did not I love it. It I is it.
0: terrible. I yeah, I totally did. Um so speaking of church because I love how you write and think about church like local church. I mean mm-hmm. you are you clearly belong to a congregation you go, you attend, you're involved. And sometimes that's not easy either. And that's uh, definitely an opportunity for us to be honest with each other and real. So I'd love for you to speak about the role of church, especially because I think there is a risk where so many of us haven't been going, attending in person, that some of us may not go back. And I Mm.
1: I think that would be a shame. I think it would be a real shame. I think there's such a, there's such a seduction, you know, to thinking that we can sort of figure out our spiritual lives on our own. You know, there's just this like brute individualism, you know, that's rampant through our culture and it just bleeds into our spiritual life. You know, like we think a lot of our spiritual disciplines is these like things that we practice in quiet by ourselves in solitude. And we just don't grant that church is, is really, gosh, I I almost want to say the most important part. I mean, I don't know if we could... I just think if you read the Bible, there's no way to understand your identity as God's child without understanding your identity as part of the people of God. You know that God's gathering to Himself a people. He's He's called a people to Himself out of the world um, to bear witness to His love. And I mean, church for me is practically where absolutely everything works out. You know, I can put a whole bunch of nice sentences on a page, um, but the rubber meets the road when. And I'll just give an example. You know, last week. Week. it looks like having a conversation, um, over about political differences with a brother and sister in Christ and moving toward them, you know, not, and, and, and saying like, this really matters. It really matters that we're in relationships with each, with each other. It really matters that we can have these conversations that are hard and that actually bear out disagreement. Um, But it really matters that we walk away from that conversation committed, even more committed to each other. And so for me, church is just like, it is like the, um, I guess it's like the, when you think about getting into the field, you know, if you're, you know, if you're a researcher or something, you can be in your laboratory, you know, working out whatever you, whatever you're studying, but it's actually when you get in the field, you see if those things really, if those principles and ideas that you've, you've worked out in the lab, like do they work in real life? And for me, church is the real life of faith. You know, it's relationships, it's disagreement, it's conflict, it's encouragement, I mean, I don't want to, I would certainly never want to say that church is all the hard stuff. It's beautiful stuff too. And moving toward church for me in this season has been a huge part of, of thinking about how to survive the pandemic. I mean, that doesn't look like gathering together in person on Sunday. But I guess the question I've been asking myself is how can I move toward my community of faith? Because I won't survive this without them. And I don't know that they'll survive this without me. And so that's even looked like this fall, I just because all of my travel is canceled, I get to leave a small group in my church. And that's kind of a new thing for me in this season. Um, but again, another way that I'm like practically Working out what I say, I believe. I say I believe that church is foundational to being um, part of the people of God. So I'm gonna put my money where my mouth is, and I actually signed up to lead a, lead a small group. That's yeah, I really love that, and I love that you said
0: how thinking about how church would survive without you,
1: mm. because
0: I think I think that's something we don't consider sometimes when we don't show up that we actually. Uh, we give something, we contribute something, we are important to our church <laughs> and we matter and we can make a difference in other people's lives. Like, I, I think that's such a, you know, kind of subtle, but
1: really important point to make. Hmm. I mean, that's even part of the conversation that I had with our friend, my friends last week of oh, talking about political differences. It wasn't, it was, it was the, the point that I wanted to sort of Bring and into that conversation was that I love you and I respect you and I want this relationship to go forward. But oh, I would be so sad if you weren't at our church anymore. Mm. Like if somehow this 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 disagreement became a reason for you to leave because you have so much to give, you know. And how 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 much we need to be saying that to each other, you know. So so often we're so, so often just thinking about ourselves, right? What we're getting, but we need to be saying to other people, I notice what you give and it matters so much to me.
0: Yeah, I love. Oh, that's so good. And speaking of good conversation, you host the Englewood Review of Books podcast, which is the most expensive podcast I listen to. I want you to know. <laughs> <laughs>
1: because you're buying all those books, exactly,
0: <laughs> exactly. Um, but so, so I'm seeing you as someone kind of setting the table for good conversations. And I read your e-newsletter too, which I commend to people. And I just think you're a really good conversationalist. And I don't know, as a, as an American who lives in Toronto, if you watched the uh, presidential debate um, which happened, <laughs> which wasn't exactly a shining example of good dialogue. But mm. I wondered if we could just speak to that a little bit about how in this time we can talk well and listen even better, which it sounds like you did with your friends recently.
1: Mm. I love this question. And it just reminds me of somebody who's been really, um, who's informed kind of my thoughts about conversation is Marilyn McIntyre, who Mm -hmm. I did just recently host on the podcast and her book, caring for words in a culture of lies is just wonderful. And I guess it's soon to be re released. Maybe, um, maybe it's been expanded, I think. Um, so I definitely want to commend that to people. But one of the, one of the chapters that she has in that book is on conversation as spiritual practice. I have, Until I read that book, I'd never even framed conversation as a spiritual practice. And I mean, that sounds silly because actually uh, everything we do as spiritual beings is a spiritual practice, you know, that is either forming us for good or deforming us, right? And when I think about conversation as, as a spiritual practice, when I just give it that, that language, it just invites me into something that is incredibly meaningful and worth investing my time in. And one of the things that I think, um, I just have tried to practice. I think conversation is 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 a two way street, right? And a lot of times we think about, well, what am I going to say? You know, and we're always thinking about what we're going to say instead of thinking about how we're going to listen. And again, I mean, Marilyn is just so good on this. You know, she talks about the kind of deep listening that we can do, where we don't just sort of absorb what somebody is saying, but we we ask further questions to sort of understand the terms that they're using or the language that they're using, or or if we misunderstand something, if they're there's like an intention or a motivation that we want to draw out. Like, that because it's hearts, right? We bring our hearts into conversation. It's not just our minds. It's not just like abstract ideas. And that probably is what goes so terribly wrong in a lot of our conversations is that we think we think of them so impersonally, especially like if we're thinking about, okay, well, I'm going to have a conversation about politics and this is going to be really hard because I think this and you think that. And now we're going to like wrestle over these ideas. And that's what happened. And, you know, you think about social media where it's Dehumanized and depersonalized even further. You know, you don't even have the person in front of you. So it's just these words on a page. And, you know, maybe part of the practice, the spiritual practice of conversation, is to enter it as a human being and to recognize that your conversation partner is also as human as you, made in the image of God, flawed beautiful, you know, um, not infallible, you know, that we're limited in our perspective. So like if we come into conversation as humans, you know, humans who have a whole kind of context, right? Humans aren't just humans come with stories And so when I come into conversations with people, you know, trying to get a sense of like context and story and and, um, you know, I commit all of the sins (laughs) that everybody else does. You know, I sort of value my own opinion over other people's, you know, and I I'm very tempted to talk over other people and just to keep talking think about my husband who's taught me a lot about conversation because he's actually very quiet. He's far more quiet in conversation than I am. And he he's more reticent to speak. And I think there's something really beautiful about that is when people leave space in conversation, don't have to fill it up all the time. I remember I was talking to somebody years ago who said, wow, I kind of feel a little bit overwhelmed by you in conversation because you're just talking, 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 you know super rapidly. And like, I don't even have a time to, to catch my breath or I don't, you know, maybe I'm not processing it as quickly. And so just there's patience required for conversation as we enter it differently at different, you know, with different expectations. And wow, we could probably do a lot with just, you know, returning to first Corinthians 13, you know, I wonder if we, that would be kind of a fun exercise And to think about, instead of, you know, insert conversation for all of those, conversation is patient and kind, you know, and it believes the best and it bears all things, you know, like good spiritual conversation, having those qualities. That, yeah, that's really uh, helpful to think of it that way. And
0: I don't know uh, if you've experienced this, but I have felt that in the uh, church in particular, I am surrounded by people who... Want to be heard? Like um, there, I don't know. Maybe they don't have people in their lives who listen to them. But I think that the art of listening is so huge. And I'm not, you know, great Mm -hmm. at it either. I'm often. uh, I just listened to a Brene Brown podcast uh, last week, but she was talking about listening to respond. Like I'm listening to you just so I can. I'm already forming my, you know, answer in my head as as you're speaking, and I. I think that's another trap we fall into, but there's such a, there'd be such a grace in slowing down and even confessing that we're doing that and then giving Mm. space and, and you're right, quiet people. Like I have a daughter who has been called quiet over the years and I'm like, well, if everyone else would be quiet (laughs) for a minute, (laughs) we could hear her. Um, Mm. So yeah, there's something very beautiful about thinking about how we talk and listen. Mm Mm-hmm. In that uh, podcast that you just alluded to with Marilyn McIntyre, and I also love that book, uh, "Caring for Words in a Culture of Lies," and you had Lauren Winner, another author who I just love. Um, but I definitely picked up on when you shared that uh, the word "evangelical" is not a word you would use in Toronto, and you said it doesn't. You said something like it doesn't mean much outside of white Republican voter in this context. And I wondered, I'd love for you to to talk about that a bit more as. I guess, small C conservative Christian, I'm so leery of those labels, even as that's what we're talking about, who lives in the Canadian culture, um, just how that feels for you and and what your thoughts are on the word evangelical in these days.
1: Mm -hmm. I wonder if it's a little bit different, you know, just for me being an American, you know, so a lot of times, you know, people are like, oh, you're American." Oh, you know, and then they want to talk about, um, even though I've lived here for almost 10 years, right? Um, But so as soon as I say I'm an American, and then as people get to know me and know that I'm, you know, a person of faith, a person of just active faith, um, they just make assumptions. You know, I don't even have to use the word evangelical. I think they just make assumptions that... Um, based on what they've heard from Canadian media, which isn't false. Four out of five uh, white evangelicals in the United States did vote for Donald Trump in the 2016 election. And I think that leaves a lot of Canadians sort of scratching their heads like, huh, how does that work? You know, what is it about Donald Trump that, you know, people love and support people of faith? What is it about about him? And so I think it immediately sort of devolves into that kind of political Um, Conversation, which I find to be a little, it it just is sort of a dead end, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a distraction. I mean, it's not that I don't. I'm afraid to talk about politics. I'd certainly be happy to talk about politics. I'm much more interested to talk to people in Canada and elsewhere about what it means to have a vital faith, you know, a vital Christian faith. It's not just about, you know, Christmas and Easter attendance at services that that's actually, you know, personal. Um, And so that's sort of why I avoid evangelical, because I think it just connotes certain things that would be distracting but i think in general in the canadian context to talk about faith is hard you know and oh. it reminds me of i opened my next book actually with a story my husband and i had gone to a dinner party with one of his business acquaintances it turns out that the, that the woman so the the man who was the host you know it's he's the business acquaintance so neither of us knew the wife um and she's an, a writer as well, a much you know more prolific and best selling writer than than me for sure and um it turned in the conversation at, at some point in the evening, the men split off, and the women split off, and she said, "You know Jen, what do you do?" and I said, "I'm a writer too." and she said, "What do you write about and it which is always such an interesting stuff, <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> stuff. like I'd love to know actually, Karen, how you answer that question because you know you again my the way that I choose my words is is always I'm trying to favor ke- keeping the conversation going. It's not that I'm ever ashamed. I'm not ashamed to, to be a Christian. I want to just keep the conversation going. Um, and I know how nervous it makes people sometimes as soon as you talk about faith. So I said, I'm a writer. I, I write about faith. I write about Christian faith. And she said she looked at me in horror <laughs> oh, no. and she said, do you mean that you believe the Bible? And I said, oh. I I do. And she said, like, like Adam and Eve and Noah. <laughs> and I said, Yes. <laughs> and she said, so like the literal Bible. And I said, Oh, I'd love to talk you talk to you about that word literal. We could really have a great conversation about that. And she she just, you know, moved on. And um, so it didn't even take the word evangelical. It's just yeah. to, you know, faith. Christian faith. Oh my gosh, I'm so nervous now. Like, what does that mean that you believe? Are you really so primitive, you know, to think that? And I don't want to, and I, I grant that, that that is strange for a lot of people. So it's like the question for me is always how do, I, how do I pursue conversations? How do I start conversations? How do I sustain conversations? How do I become the kind of person that's hospitable to somebody who is really nervous? How do I make it a, how do I, how can I talk about this in a way that can be meaningful, um, courageous? but hospitable.
0: And that word nervous, that is very helpful because I think we sometimes just assume hostility, we assume that they don't like us. But to think of the person as nervous as opposed to, you know, hateful or whatever yeah. is is really helpful and and I think you raise a very very good point about yeah, it doesn't take the word evangelical in Canada to freak someone out. <laughs> <laughs> Right. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we're probably like 20 years, I don't know how these things are measured, but we are a little, we are years further down the road of secularization than than in the States for sure. So Mm -hmm. I have more non-Christian friends now than I did 10 years ago, partly because I went back to school in in Mm. the secular program and I made some really good writing friends. And as you know, as a writer, writing friends, you know, you, you tend to just, you're really tell everybody tell each other everything and I mean it gets pretty vulnerable pretty quickly when you're sharing Mm. your writing so but I did feel like I went through a process of where they uh, like first there was this phase of convincing them somehow that I was not weird like a Mm. a real weirdo Um, (laughs) by just sort of being normal I guess I mean with them and and I think now we have a good friendship but I I love that idea of appreciating that they are nervous they they think certain things about us, and they're not necessarily
1: to be blamed for that. no, not at all. I think that we have earned in some ways our very <laughs> complicated reputation yeah um, and i i I'm glad actually that you said nervous because I thought oh that that actually is right, and the more that we can sort of lean into being hospitable to that and I guess, compassionate about that nervousness and actually explicitly trying to waylay it. That's a lot of what I do, I think, in conversations about faith. Like, I know, you know, you probably think this, or you may be nervous about that or think that, you know, I think think the assumption is you have some, you know, Bible or tract, you know, in some hidden pocket. And, you know, this is the moment that you, you know, make the sale. And I never want to Um, tell my non-Christian friends that I don't care about where they stand with um, faith, you know, questions of faith. I think these are ultimate questions, and I I want to be in conversation about them. I also want to constantly trust God that, you know— he will do his work. Right. And that as I continue to try to be the sort of person that is as hospitable as Jesus, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, in the gospels, so incredibly hospitable and the way he holds conversations with people are, are, is so masterful, right. Built so much on questions more than kind of these like emphatic declarations. I want to grow to model that and to live that way and to trust that God will do his work through that. Well,
0: I think we all want to know, though, what happened at the dinner party.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, the conversation sort of ended there. And I and I ended up feeling like, oh, you know huh, I wish I could have said something more. But interestingly enough, um, when she was showing us out the door, because the men and the women had split up, and there was another couple there actually too. She was showing us out the door, and this was the first time that we were sort of together again. She turns to her husband and she said, did you know that Jen's a believer? (laughs) Oh, no. I thought, well, yeah. So you never know. You never know what may come of that. You know, Um, Right. And so, again, I, I, it's illuminating to me. I always take those kinds of conversations like, what can I learn from that? You know, what I can learn is, ag- again, that that nervousness, that fear, that real kind of like palpable fear. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. You believe these things. Aren't those so hurtful and harmful in the world? As Christians, it, as soon as it, if we could just understand that that's sort of behind A lot of what you would say we characterize as hostility. Wow, we could get further in our conversations with people who don't share our faith commitments.
0: Jen, thank you so much. This has been so fun for me. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me, Karen. Thank you for listening. Check out more podcasts and subscribe
0: to Faith Today magazine for free at faithtoday.ca. This podcast is produced by the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. If you enjoyed it, please rate or share it.